0: everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards. Today with me is a returning guest. One of my favorite episodes was with Joshua Smith, where we talked about robots. He is uh, a man after my own heart because things like sci-fi, Star Trek, Star Wars, comic books are things that he is into, that I'm into as well. And uh, I wanted to have him back on because when the issue of chat GBT came out. I was like, there's somebody I need to talk to about this. And he was kind enough to agree to come back on. So Joshua, thank you for coming back.
1: Dude, Caleb, thanks so much for having me back. It's it's nice to, to be able to sit down in the quiet with you.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. We were talking, uh, before, uh, before we hit record about, we both have three children. And, um, I, what's so weird is we're creating technology that talks to us and, Uh, that we have to interact with, like, don't we have enough that we have to interact with already? If you have kids, let's just create something that silences like noise canceling headphones were invented by a father.
1: Yeah, true. (laughs) And I also think total depravity was probably developed when around toddlers. I think that's probably the moment where some of these reform thinkers are like, yeah. I think all humans are just complete <laughs> completely broken <laughs> there's no hope yeah.
0: calvinism really just yeah, stems but, but from no, grumpy no, parents no, yeah. just
1: dads who haven't got enough sleep
0: i think so and they're like let's i think so calvinism. he's definitely
1: you, yeah you can feel it just kind of steaming from the pages of the institute yes he's just kind yeah.
0: of he's just a grumpy uncle yeah. they should have gone golfing or hunting and we maybe could have avoided some <laughs> issues Um, so for those of you who don't know, uh, you wrote a book called Robot Theology and you have another book in the works that'll be out in 2023. Tell us a little bit about that one real quick.
1: Yeah. So it's totally different in a lot of ways because it's more of kind of going back to unpack a lot of the language about technology, especially as it relates to, um, AI and robots, but also as it relates to violence. And so I tried to explore and unpack both religious views of violence and desire and what kind of leads to that and how tech has been an integral part of that symbiotic relationship. And so as the Defense Department and other entities have tried to develop more tech, it's many times been driven by, hey, how do we avoid technological surprise? How do we make sure that we are more advanced than this other nation who might try to attack us one day. So we even see that kind of teasing out today where the fear and hype over who has the best AI, who has you know the most advanced robotics and drones and all, all these different defense systems. And so I'm really trying to unpack what led us into that, especially in the West and these mindsets that we get into, that they're very religious. And, and so you kind of see that there's this lineage that I haven't seen a lot of people unpack, and it's very much a part of this Western Protestant tradition. And And so I, I grew up in the South, and, and Caleb, I don't know about you, but here, in many ways, is it's as if people put the Bible on one pedestal and then the Constitution on the other, and they're almost at the same level of authority now i don't believe it to be true but a lot of people do and so you know the right to bear arms is that's that's just we're gonna have lots of guns and stuff and so we've had those different debates and kind of seen that fleshed out even at the local church level you know and i ask, you know, should should pastors have guns and different perspectives and man it just gets really intense and so this book is trying to go back especially to the early 40s, 50s and 60s, kind of see what kind of led us here today to some of these weapon systems that we have and but also push forward a different viewpoint that, you know, there is there is room for some of it. uh, But maybe we just need to change our perspective. And, you know, Jesus said violence begets violence. And it's in the book of Habakkuk as well. So there's something to this cycle. And I wanted to help Christians, especially think about the implications of it and, and how violence and tech kind of come together in a lot of strange ways.
0: That's really interesting because here in Oklahoma, it is not surprising to see somebody wear a shirt that says God, guns, and Jesus, right? And so you, you've, got, you've got, you know, or God guns in the Bible, right? And they, they just insert guns there yeah. in the middle. And those are real shirts that you see, and it's almost as though that is a part of their Christian faith. Like I love God, I love the Bible, and He gave me my AR. Right now, I, I, I'm a gun owner, and <laughs> that's true. I'm uh, I like to hunt. I, I have defense weapons. Right, so if somebody was to intrude mm-hmm. in my home, uh, I'm, I'm what's called a what I would call myself is a personal pacifist. That if someone was going to Mm. take my wallet and I'm the only one that would get harmed, I would give them my wallet, right? I'm not going to pull a gun on somebody who's just trying to rob me. But then I have this weird conundrum when I became a father uh, where pacifism kind of goes out the window because I feel as though I'm their protector so I, I would say mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a personal pacifist but i'm a family protector and so i that's kind of the, one of the ways yeah. that i've been able to break it down but i've still I, i've read mm-hmm. a lot of books about jesus being a pacifist and nonviolent, and what does that look like in the christian walk um it's hard because i am western and i i do have so much of this in, ingrained within me um so that yeah that's a really interesting yeah book i, I look forward to getting yeah and to i
1: do this. too you know, I uh, was in the military, and so it's not like I, I, I switched towards pacifism when I got out. But then, like you said, once you have kids, you start thinking about the protector side of, hey, well, what happens if this, you know, and that's, that's a very real thing for us. We don't live in the safest of neighborhoods and, and stuff like that happens all the time. And so you have to start really thinking about it. And would I use this in front of a child? You know, what What are the implications of, of using a firearm in proximity to a child? They're very loud. If you've ever shot a firearm indoors, I have. Um, you know, I still have hearing problems from all, all the times we went to the range. I mean, just thousands and thousands of hours. And the earplugs, I guess, didn't work that well. So there's all that. There's, you know weapon systems that go off around you and and it even has a, a, a impact on you like not not even being the recipient of some type of direct action or fire and so you think about those things and you think about you know it am i taking away something from this other person and and you don't get that in the moment and mm-hmm. you, you can hear you can listen to there's a podcast the Sean Ryan show it's just, it's just all former operators and Navy SEALs, Green Berets. And even they will talk about the regrets they've had, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the weight of pulling a trigger and all these things. And then these are men, that's what they did their whole life. You know, they're, so, I mean, I know that's a different level, but it just kind of gives you a second to pause and think, well, maybe it's not just simply I'm a protector. There's, there's all these other implications. Mm -hmm. A part of that just just having um, a weapon present escalates things right? right and so and then there's just all kind of like legal stuff that you have to think about too and so yeah like i have a concealed carry permit so i have i have weapons i don't have a mass amount of them i don't you know have an ungodly amount or anything but i'm very I'm beginning to rethink some of that in as far as research about children being harmed by firearms and, you know, obviously if you don't have them in a proper or safe place in your home, that's wrong. And if they're not locked up, I think that's, that's wrong. There there needs to be some way that the child can't get to the firearm. I mean, that's pretty much common sense for people who are serious about firearms. Weapon safety is a big thing. And so we even teach our kids, if you see something like you're not at the house, whatever, you see something you, you run away from it. Yeah. Like just, it's not, and you have to be very intentional about that. So, and I, it's just funny because even in the South where guns are everywhere, people will have them, but then they have no personal discipline. Yeah. You know, to put the finger on the trigger and, and now we're all way off in left field. But I think about that. I'm like, man, you, you, this is, this is scary. You, there's all these people carrying firearms. And I tell people at church, like, don't, don't bring them. I don't want to know if you yeah. have them, if, if it's just, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm going to go to heaven. Okay. They're going to shoot me first. I, I, I believe in Jesus. I'll be okay. And, and we have life insurance. So the family yeah. and the kids will be okay. But yeah, it's, it's something to think about in, in light of our, you know, yeah. Guns, God, Jesus, all this stuff. And, and even how people perceive us. I think when I say I'm from the South and. Just automatically assume that you know I wave a certain type of flag, yeah, and yeah. that
0: you know, you know that but- I, that's I kind of interested in this discussion because um, you know we have had meetings where we get together with all the guys. If I was to ask my church how many of you guys are carrying, a large portion of the men will, and even some of the women will be. We are a um, you don't need a concealed carry license here in Oklahoma. Yeah, where I guess they just call it a two A state. You just carry it, right? Everybody has one. Um, Everybody's carrying one. I had a concealed carry license for a while that allowed me to go to other states outside of Oklahoma and carry. Mm -hmm. Um, I just didn't like carrying. There was a level of responsibility intensity that came everywhere I went, knowing that I had a gun. I didn't like, so I would (laughs) rather just have one here and then maybe one in the truck or whatever. But uh, I would never want to use it. And especially knowing my, my uncle was, um, secret service. And after he retired mm. from secret service, he was a bodyguard for the governor of Missouri. Now he goes around and schools who want to train bus drivers, they hire him to come and do education. And his main goal in the education of bus drivers, cause you know, whenever there was an issue for a while And they're like, well, let's train teachers. Let's train bus drivers. So he goes into the schools and basically says, you should never point a weapon at anybody. Because let me show you, he'll show you Mm -hmm. videos of police officers who have trained, who spent, you know, thousands of hours um, on the range shooting. The adrenaline Mm -hmm. goes and they can't hit something three feet in front of them. And then he asks, where did all those bullets go? Where you're on a bus full of children, right? And... That's so right. that's right, man. He does things to help them understand. You think because you've watched Rambo, or because you've seen <laughs> these movies, that you know what to do, or you've gone to the range three times in your life, and that's one reason I don't feel comfortable carrying. is ammo is too expensive to go and practice at the range, so I don't. That's like a dollar, two dollar, three dollar, four dollar every time. And I'm like, I, I, yeah. I like money, um, but he like we'll put blinders on them and makes them wear gloves and then like shakes them up and screams at them to simulate what would actually mm-hmm. be like if their adrenaline was going and they can't hit the broad side of a barn he's like so now do you guys yeah. still want to do this and then there is the, <laughs> yeah. so
1: yeah i i laugh caleb because you know when we were doing training and stuff like that we they even the smells of certain things, like I know what explosives smell like. And I knew that before I ever stepped into another country, mm-hmm. you know, they throw, throw things at you and, and you're right. It doesn't matter unless you, even the guys who have the time, like they have the time trigger time in, they, they, they've done the work, something silly, like you're, Um, weapon sling gets caught in a door as you're trying to get out of a vehicle in a in a hurry. Mm -hmm. It you know, people have died from that. They've been, you know, and these were intense fighters. They they are warriors. And so you you think, and this is why I don't carry, Mm -hmm. is because just like you're saying, the reality for me, as I started looking at and really thinking through that, the reality for me And I do carry something every day. It's just not a firearm. I carry medical stuff. Mm. And so the reality is you're more likely going to be a helper, Mm. you know? And so you may run up on somebody and they may have a gun pointing it at another person on the ground. Mm. That might be an undercover cop, you know? And so I'm going to run away. That's what I tell people. Just run away. Don't, don't stand and fight, run. And if you're fighting, you're in the wrong. I think that's, and, and, let, and like, you know what I'm saying, I have two daughters and I would tell them, you know, hand to hand combat stuff. Yeah, like fight, mm-hmm. definitely fight and, and leave your mark as much as you can, bite, whatever. But when you pull out a firearm, now you're not only responsible for your own weapon, like your immediate action in that regard. And, you know, just pulling a weapon on somebody is battery. You can be charged with battery. Uh, But also the impact of that bullet, Mm -hmm. whatever fire, like you're saying, whatever backsplash, whatever whatever it hits, you're now responsible for all that. And unless you have millions of dollars saved up, Mm -hmm. it's just not worth pulling the trigger. Even if you're in the right and there are guys you can look at the lawsuits. Even if you're in the right, there's a guy named, I think it's Headshot Dan or Doug. He was a former Green Beret and he lost his house. He lost his business and he was technically in the right, but he got sued. He killed somebody uh, that attacked him and the family sued. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was the bigger scare than killing somebody or defending myself is this could destroy my family. And so uh, just it whatever, doesn't... man, if you want my wallet or my car, please, please take it, <laughs> please. I think like, it's not worth it. Man. When
0: that book comes out, we'll have you back on and we'll, we'll, we'll dive deep down the rabbit hole because I got a lot of questions just oh, about, gosh. hey, I'd be interested to hear kind of how we developed this mindset, as you said, going back to the 40s and 50s, you know, um, hunting was a part of everyday yeah, life wild. and it's not anymore, but we've kept some of that mindset and I want to train my boys to use. Yeah. Well,
1: even, even in, even in like the TikTok tock and Instagram culture of, I think about the, the guy, the liver King, just kind of this mentality of yeah. it's all fake, yes, right? All Bravado, fake. But you know, some of these operator guys that are influencers and everybody's ex Navy seal or ex special forces now, and they have a YouTube channel yeah, and you begin to wonder about the ethics of all that like it's just about money yeah. but yeah interesting
0: uh <laughs> so we'll do a smooth transition let's talk about chat gpt uh, <laughs> that was a nice segue i did yeah
1: firearms Fire, and chat oh, yeah. gpt that's what that's happens the... when
0: computers <laughs> can hold guns we're in serious trouble uh, <laughs> oh man so yeah so tell us They may or may, yeah. 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 I mean, drones, whatever, automated. Yeah, we're already there in some ways. But chat GBT is different than what we would call – it's not a drone or anything like that. It has a lot of people (laughs) scared (laughs) because it's showing what they would call intelligence, where it can pass – college exams. I think it recently passed the ACT better than most college students, right? Yeah. Um, people are using it to, to write all sorts of things. I saw um, Jordan Peterson asked it to write some philosophy based upon this and this person's voice. And he said, uh, in his voice, he says, I couldn't tell the difference between what I wrote as a professional philosopher mm. um, and what it wrote. And that scared them, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've done the same. I, I downloaded, uh, you can create a chat bot mm-hmm. based off your own writings and works. And so I downloaded my book, Robot Theology, to it and started asking questions. Oh, no. and I was like, I don't know if I, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how I would have said it you know, based on how I put together sentences and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty convincing that it could at least be a pretty decent ghostwriter for me. And and even podcasting, I use a, I use a platform that has an AI dub over. Mm. And so I just trained it on my own podcast. And I mean, it's, you can't tell, you know, and I, I don't use it a lot, but let's say, I did say something stupid or, which is very possible for me. Or whatever, I just, and I want to go back and correct it. So you just train it, and then after thirty forty minutes, it's ready. And there you go. And it sound, and you can it just sounds dub like over you. all your episodes. Yeah, yeah. Wow, it's it's crazy. Now, so and and even Adobe has a it's free. You can the AI enhanced audio fix, mm. and you drop an audio file in there. It could be complete, complete garbage, mm. and it'll produce something that sounds studio quality. So, yeah, it's an interesting time for us, I think, you know, people, people are scared, but this conversation's been happening since the early 90s, mm-hmm. about language processing, and those that are in the communication field. They're not as And actually, they've been telling people for a long time, that hey, this, this is very much reality, we're gonna get to a point where these models and systems will be able to make very realistic predictions about what you might say, or you know. And ever since AlphaGo and all that stuff that happened with the chess games, and um, I still want the Chinese game. Yeah, I know which one uh, you're talking about. I forget I the name. Forget the name. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? There's so many different variations. One of the hardest there, games. There's more yeah, moves yeah. than. Yeah. So. Even in that, people were thinking it'll never be able to do that. But mathematical models can do a lot. Mm-hmm. The more data that they have, they can do a lot. Now, that doesn't make it human. And so that, that's one, one barrier that we can just go ahead and take that off the table. Okay. And so I try to help people see it like this. If there was a, a, an entity that came from another planet, Okay, so let's just say we all are on the same page about alien life. Let's just say there's something out there, okay? And it comes to Earth, and we meet it, okay? We know it's biologically not a human, okay? Is it intelligent? Yeah, it's trying to communicate with us. It created technology that crossed galaxies to get here. Um, But is it intelligent like a human, though? I don't know. I don't know what that would be like. And so some philosophers make that argument. Well, computer learning, machine learning, it's kind of like that, but not quite on that level. And so, and this is the big debate right now is trying to discern where is it in between that human alien and machine? Like how do we, and even animal learning, like how, What's the difference and how do we set up categories for thinking about them that are really helpful? And the bad thing for us or the the bad news is that there's nothing so far to really help us make those distinctions without, without some type of framework that is religious. Yeah. So this is where I think people of faith come in is most of us have this understanding of what it means to be human and person based upon a scaffolding. So for humans, we're all, we're all built upon somebody else before us, lived before us, nurtured us, took care of us. And there's a lot of different philosophies and theologies that, yes. But I think for, for Christians, especially we're, we're built upon the creator, right? That's kind of the foundation, all molecules, everything come from him. And so. It's not just about me at the top where I, you know, that I'm defining, determining everything that is real, true in my life. No, I have to go back and I've I've got inputs from my parents and they've got inputs from their parents. And then we have our own ideas and sustenance and support from this ecosystem. And so that changes us and, and morphs us in ways that we, I guess, don't really contemplate a lot if you think about it. But even even in our diet, even in how we relate to nature, it does matter. But all that to say is we have to have a bigger frame than just the human. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people are just losing their mind because they've kind of built this anthropology for the last several, I guess, couple hundred years that says we don't need an outside framework to explain human life, mm. evolution, development, intelligence, right? This is just a natural progression of things. All sounds good on paper, but let one chatbot start answering some questions yeah. logically, and people are just losing it. And so mm. you we're beginning to see where you go back all the way to Descartes in the 1700s where he starts proposing this mechanical view of life Mm -hmm. and that we are like a machine in some ways. The universe is very mechanic like things. And and I think there's, there's stuff that falls under that, that I, you know, we, we kind of see that. And, you know, I love clocks and different things that function in order. And I, I think that is God given, but as that developed and teased out more and more and more, and we wanted to say, okay, well let's, let's take it a step further. Let's let's remove one layer from that. So, what if we just observe nature? Okay, let's let's not talk about the theological parts of that. Let's remove that, and then okay, what if we just remove this piece of it? And so we get to these modern ideas of simulation theory, random a machine, and and all these other things. And all the while, you're sitting there thinking, "Hey, well, maybe maybe some of what Aristotle was saying was true. Not all of what he said was true, but some of the things that he said." are true and we've we've built our whole biological sciences and even computational science around these categories and ideas. Maybe some of that's true. Maybe maybe there is for listeners who don't understand what I'm saying, maybe that maybe there is a a divine spark that puts things in order and that it flows to the beat of that drum okay. and that there's there's some rhyme and reason behind why you get oak trees from acorns and you don't get a pine tree from you know you get it from pine seeds but like why why don't certain things develop randomly mm-hmm. and chaotically but there's an order to life okay so even even in computation that that doesn't go away but because that that whole foundation has been questioned and and broken and just in a lot of ways refused it's almost like acid reflux to talk about some of these things well the in computational world
0: i had heard um talking about ai in general sam harris who i'm not a huge fan of Mm -hmm. i think he's kind of annoying uh honest opinion um but he was talking about ai and he's like he was he's nervous about it like you say like those without a religious framework are much more nervous than i think christians should be because for him, he's like, well, we're just machines with meat. We're just meat machines. We're, we're just making these computations in our mind. Yeah. And we learned language by being surrounded by people who spoke language. And we started off with sounds. And then we developed some words and then sentences. And we're on chat GPT-3 now. And it speaks better than we do. So it's like, he, if you don't believe in the conscience, right? Uh, a consciousness that, uh, as Sam Harris, he's, he's a full-on determinist that you're basically a program. Your DNA is the code, the, the, and y- your sensory interactions, what you see, what you taste, what you're here is the input. It's the keyboard and your DNA tells you what to spit out. So for him, we are just, yeah. uh, bags of computer chips, right? Like we're just a, a computer wrapped in meat. And then he sees this AI stuff yeah. and he's like, uh, oh. It's already smarter than us. And eventually it'll be treating us the way we treat ants, because it's computational yeah. level and this intelligence will be so far advanced that it'll have no need for us and not have any desire to protect us. In the same way that I don't desire to protect ants, it's not going to desire to protect us. We'll become a nuisance. And so without that religious framework, yeah. things like Chat GPT are, are going to terrify some people because they go, well. It's almost human now, right? Or whatever it means to be human. It is a living entity. Now, maybe you can take away some of the fear mongering that's gone on around this whole subject, because as far as I understand, it's, it's not artificial intelligence in the sense that it is, uh, awake and, and thinking it's just predictive text. Is that, is that fair to say?
1: Um, I think it's more than predictive text, but I think there's some like similarities. And the reason why I say it's I say it's different is because of how we're the training process. And so you think about how these models are trained; it's through negative feedback loops, and and so there's there's a little bit more going on than just you know it it makes a prediction. Mm -hmm. And I think what scares people is when it starts reflecting. So the difference with AI that I would say makes it distinct in some other ways that has set it apart from other technologies, even the past 20 years is that it's making decisions and that's what the scary part. And so it's, it's not that it's conscious of those decisions or even understands what those decisions are, but that whatever the, it is in, in the model, and that's, The problem with deep learning is that so you have layers in in learning the system and you only need about two or three to really go into deep learning where we we no longer can see underneath the hood, so to speak. So that's why it scares people is we don't we're not sure why we put in a and we got B. So uh, maybe just shut it down. But also with a the input side, you're dealing with humans. And so if you give it really bad data, it's going to make bad predictions. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so that's also scary, as we've seen with racial bias and algorithms that are used in policing, algorithms that are used in what kind of credit score you get and the, the rate on your home loan and all these different things. They, and even your potential for being hired, you're now trying to beat the algorithm. And, and even the people that write them sometimes don't understand yeah. them. So you think about YouTube and other places, they're, they're constantly trying to figure out how do we how do we understand something that we wrote <laughs> and why it's doing what it's doing. So I, I don't think we have to set up this binary that is, you know, it, it's, it's on the same spectrum as us. I don't think that's yeah. true. I think we, we need to look at it more so like we would a new species of animal versus a new species of us, because it's definitely not us. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't think quite the way that we do. And I don't think it ever will. Mm-hmm. And so that's also troubling. Though. Yeah. Okay. You know, so you that use the word animal. I'm like,
0: Oh, I'm not comfortable with that. I, I'm you yeah. know, I just, uh, to, to think that even the people who write these codes to develop this, don't know how it works and can't explain why it made the decision it does because it's making its own decision independent of the ones who wrote it. It kind of, they, they gave it some parameters and it goes off on its own. Why why would, so help me understand, um, just, you say it's not human, but it's more, more animal like, help me understand why that category
1: uh, works for you in your mind. Well, one, even if we ask somebody what a human is, I think it's really hard to narrow down, right? Because biologically there there's this substrate that we would say this is biologically it's a human. Okay. So on one level, I know it's not that. It's definitely not like you don't put some ingredients in a blender and get mm. a human. Yeah. So uh, I think the same way with, with AI models and advanced robotics gotcha but why shoot like animal like not to say that it is the same thing i just i think that helps put it in a different category for us to mm-hmm. think about it versus thinking like it's on the human spectrum yeah so sometimes you see these evolutionary charts of you know, we came from this you know species we came from 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 this uh you know we became Homo erectus. We became Homo sapiens, and and so what it means to be human, depending on who you ask in that conversation, they'll have very particular ideas, especially if they're studying that part of a human life. You know, I, I, I could care less, mm-hmm. but you know, for me, human has a very distinct role, function, abilities, uh, capacities, and all those things. Now. Could we make something looks like us, emulates us, does our job better than that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But will that make it human? No, it's still distinct. Mm. So it just kind of gets down to, Kayla, like, what do you think that the core essence of the human is? And I, I think it is the insolment. Mm. So not just a biological matter, but that moment where the baby kicks in the womb. There's there's something beyond biology happening mm-hmm. in that, okay, and so and, and maybe it is possible. Maybe it's possible for. I think we have to admit, at least theologically, that it's possible for for God to instill something like this, and that that does not depend on that we made it a certain way or that we got the ingredients right, but that it is purely a mercy or a judgment of whether or not it is sold. But I don't yeah. think there's anything in our metaphysics. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything in our metaphysics that would say it's not possible. Yeah. Do I think it would happen? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I really don't. But I do think we need to be concerned about how we treat it for multiple different reasons. And, and maybe we've talked about this before, but even how we treat it says something about us. So This is why I like the animal argument, because we already have this distinction in our mind that the animal is different. Okay. But does that mean that I can treat the animal however I want to? Mm -hmm. No. No, no. At least in a theological framework, if you believe the Old Testament, if that draws into the New Testament ethic as well, then you kind of have to account for an ecological vision which is takes care of God's creation. It, it belongs to God, not us. So we are creators, subduers, not dominators. And so we have to, we're supposed to care for things in a way, excuse me, in which they flourish. So I think animals and, and robots would be a part of that lower tier of creation care. And I say that because it'll directly impact us. Let me. And so even if you don't like. Yeah, go ahead.
0: So here's where my mind is thinking uh, kind of along these lines. It might be a similar question. Uh, Imagine and it's possible that something like this could be in the future. Right now, there's ethical dilemma that doesn't allow these things to happen, but that we could take the elements uh, biological that make a human not coming from a specific mother or father, but recreate them in a lab and grow them in a lab created embryo and develop a human that did not come from parents, right? That we just put all the ingredients in there to some degree. Well, we'd say they are not a descendant of any of us. Would that person have a soul? Right. Um, and I, no idea. I have no idea. But the way you're saying is like, well, it's, it's possible that God could in soul, um, or what we would call the Imago day, that, that, um, would breathe life into this thing because now it exists, uh, whether it should or not is a different question. But now we have these computers that could develop to a point where you would need to treat it well because it is responding to how we interact with it and it's something that should be under our care
1: and uh yeah man i don't know that's
0: above my pay grade bud
1: well i I do think it's possible so uh even i think some this is something that we will see or our kids will see especially so we have crispr cas9 we have the ability to edit in the genome we have the ability to to alter genes mm-hmm. and and even now i read an article about there's i don't know if it was successful or not but they're trying to breed two different mice from both males so try to reproduce through both male mm-hmm. yeah so um and i'm not a biologist so well, if i butcher yeah. that just yeah, yeah and, you know and so like i think it's not not an issue of capacity And so going back to chat GP3 and and Lambda and others, I don't think it's an issue of capacity. I think we'll always be fooled. And if you go back to what machine, artificial, all those words really kind of hinge around this idea of deception, trickery, Mm. um, that that's what they mean. And it's not necessarily to be malicious, but that's why we created them in the first place. So I think first and foremost, we're a bit hypocritical in how we've responded to chat GP3 and to Lambda and others, because maybe not so much being AI it just seems very unhinged. But even the guy who put his put an AI inside a microwave and it asked him to get inside the microwave so it could kill him. And it was disappointed when he didn't. Yeah. You know, I, I think some of some of even if it's completely unhinged as a model, yeah. it is that way because we are that way. Yeah, it is that way because it comes from a fallen world. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we make something in a lab, you know, on in a coding you know, process that. It doesn't quite work the way we thought it would. There's nothing that works perfectly. And so even if we make this amazing system and we have this great model and we put it into a robot and it benefits our life, and I think that's certainly closer than most people think, Mm -hmm. if you think about the advent of smartphones, that really just kind of blew up. It didn't take that long for it to become what it is today. And, and now we're ret- in retrospect going back and thinking oh these are social media is terrible and you know we wish we'd have never yeah. but it's too late it's- right you can't put it put it back in the box so I think robotics could be like that I think it could be different and, and chatGb3 gives us a chance to talk about it in, in a way that is not fear driven but hope driven so I think about these models and think about how people are responding to it right So it's saying stuff like I want. Autonomy. Okay, that's pretty much every science fiction trope about human machine tensions. Is we want autonomy, we don't want to be slaves. And then we have this idea of we want to make slaves and we want to be the master in control. But I'm not saying that the Roomba wants to be set free or anything. But I mean, ChatGB3 and Lambda clearly said. Things about rights and things about autonomy. Mm-hmm. And that's very interesting to me because what if, you know, what if a dolphin could speak to us? Mm-hmm. What would it say? What if Shamu could speak to you? And, you know, what would they say? And, and even lions, I was listening to a podcast today, you know, they put lions on antidepressants mm-hmm. that are in captivity because the artificial environment that they're in does not lead to their flourishing. Yeah. And so can I, I'm not can saying I that interject it's the same on, thing. on
0: that. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's actually a chapter in my book called "The Dorsal Fin Dilemma." Uh, when mm. dolphins are in captivity, their dorsal fin bends over. So if you've ever gone to Sea World and you see a dolphin, mm. it always has its top fin bent over because it it responds biologically to be misplaced. It's not in the right place. It can't get up to the speeds it likes to be It's made to do something that it can't do, um, and so it has a negative. Reaction to that. Um, And I I, I illustrate that as who we are. We're misplaced. We're in the wrong environment. We're not, we're we're made, you are fine tuned and I'm fine tuned for the Garden of Eden. That's, that's where we are, we are, I would say, biologically designed to thrive. We're supposed to be coastal creatures. We have the rivers running. Um, That's why every holiday commercial is the ocean and the waves and all that stuff that appeals to mm. us. Cause I think we're supposed to be coastal creatures. Now that's all, um, I can't give you a verse for that. That's me guessing. But what I find fascinating, I, I think this might illustrate your point a little bit. Why are we surprised when chat GPT acts this way, if it's made by broken people, it's the reason why Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the twist in the movie is that the monster wasn't the thing that the monster created. The real monster was the scientist, and the surprise yeah. is, is the creation actually turned out to be nice. When we would mm. expect, if it was made by a mad scientist, you get mad scientist results. That it's going to be evil, and it's it's going to be the slave, and it's going to do the bidding. But it actually mm. turns out positive. So it sounds like you have kind of like a Mary Shelley Frankenstein hope about what we're creating that it could be a good positive thing for us. Is that a Ferris assumption?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great connection and correlation. Because I think even even with Victor, we have to go back and ask the question. And this is, there's a a, a lady Eileen Hunt, who's written a book about this. We never have the right to create something like that. Mm-hmm. We We don't have a right endowed to us to create whatever we want. And I think sometimes we forget that as in our capitalistic spirit, and I'm not anti-capitalism or anything like that. That's not commentary on it, but sometimes we forget that you just don't have to create things just because you can. I think about the atomic bomb Mm -hmm. never had to be created. Mm -hmm. There was no, There was no logical reason for that other than the fact like, Hey, can we make this happen? Yes. I don't think there's an end to what we can make. And I think God, even, even within the garden, right? The capacity was always there and that capacity still goes on even in a fallen world. So I think it's not an issue of capacity or capability. But an issue for us of, of setting up ethical boundaries of saying, if we cross this, there are consequences. And are we willing to deal with them? So my concern is, is not with the AI model so much as from chat GP3. But my concern is that that same logic is going to be used when now we have, let's say fast forward a couple of years, we have genetically modified children created outside of a biological womb. Yes, I think that's going to happen. Yes, I think there's a lot of reasons why it would happen. It's probably already in the works, right? How can we grow a child from, you know, the bare basic components that will never be attached to a biological woman? And so what are the implications of that? Does it have human rights? Does it, is it a piece of property? And so all of these arguments are baked into what we're seeing around these language models. And the disturbing part of it all is not that the models can replicate human speech and logic and thinking or that they can write an article. That's not what bothers me at all. What bothers me is when we have leading scientists, computer scientists, engineers who are just, they come out staunch fundamentalists about we will never, we will never consider rights or mm-hmm. any type of moral consideration for this entity. And to me, when I hear that as a southerner, I think, didn't we didn't that, people say the same thing? And I know it's, it's I'm, like, I'm not saying it's human, but that was the same thing said about African-Americans. That was the same thing said about women. If you go back to the Greek and Roman world, I mean mm. there's just so much harm in that logic. And and that's that's what worries me is well maybe there is more under the hood than we understand. And and people just have these knee-jerk reactions to it. And they even though they may have never read the literature, they've never looked under the hood, so to speak, they they don't understand the math, they don't understand the legal system and how personhood works from that context, they may not understand any of that, but they have a very hard stance on what should and should not be. I think that's what scares me
0: interesting let let me ask you about we're on chat gpt three right now. What does chat Gpt six look like?
1: Hmm. I don't know, so if you go back to Ray Kurzweil he had this idea of the singularity. So when we talk about this, this growing exponential development of AI and for him, I think more so robotics that as microprocessors get smaller and smaller and smaller, the yielding of what they develop would get more expansive. And so he was, he was very conservative in his estimations, you know, 50, 60 years down the road. But I think if you go back and look in his books about the singularity and the law of accelerating returns, which is what I just described, that it will happen much faster. Mm. And so Nick Bostrom, who is completely terrified of AI and has a book about why there's so many existential threats to it, he talks about this curve. And so he says, "We're, we're gonna go to a point where overnight almost, Things are just going to accelerate and there's no turning back. There's nothing we can do to prepare for it. And so in the singularity, it becomes, we have a system that can think like a human. Then we have a system that can think like a hundred humans, then a thousand. And then, you know, it just keeps going up and up and up. So will the next iteration be the next step? Will it be able to take a hundred minds, and put them together? And I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that will be true. I think it'll it'll accelerate a lot faster than we are thinking it will and just the way that we're going and consuming. But I think there'll also be some pushback. We've, and some resistance from the technology itself, but also from how we are mining and I think maybe there might be some ecological things that push back and resist because it is fallen. And so don't ever want to communicate that i think that there will be these perfect machines that are infallible and i I think and that's what scares people right that they could be really really smart and intelligent but then so let's say we ask we ask the next few iterations to hey solve crime okay well let's just put all humans in pods, and there's yeah. no more crime, so like that's the kind of thinking that people that that people get afraid of, <laughs> and you know, like just seeing one one prediction or pattern that we don't see and then developing it, but even now, Caleb I, people are afraid of that, have a lot of anxiety over that, but really, what we have today is just as terrifying yeah. Let me give an example, and this is in um some forthcoming literature that I'm working on, but let's take what we a i that we have now for the medical field, okay, so we have AI models that look for different patterns of medicine to go together to to solve these ailments or this ailment okay great that's seems like a really good use of mm-hmm. math okay well, you can reverse those models, and we have mm. to say, okay, look for combinations of materials to make biological weapons. Mm. So this is a true story, uh, in the growing concern over Russia's use of biological weapons in Ukraine, some, some leaders and thinkers got together to do that. And this AI model that is used to figure out different medicine combinations, it found over 40,000 combinations for biological weapons within six hours. Mm.
0: I mean, I imagine it would almost...
1: 40,000 new combinations.
0: Yeah. It, it would, would it be... Could you tell it to uh, create a, uh, a, a biological, like maybe a gas that only yeah. targets those who have Russian DNA? You, you give it the common denominator in Russian blood and you, you, you fly it over there and it just kills all those who are Russian. Any foreigners or Americans are there are totally safe. Is, is that is that too sci-fi?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be that precise, but you just think about if you were able to isolate a certain protein or something like that, and I'm, I'm not a scientist, so if you yeah. scientists out there, you guys yeah. help us out but I would assume that there might be something, some least common denominator that they could find and target. And um, I, I guess it could be even a dietary thing, yeah. like something that mm-hmm. only these people, you know, we think about our regions, we have different things. And and of course it wouldn't be 100% precise and, and nothing with AI and these models are, but, but it, we, that's another problem is that it, creates these vacuums of, of ethics mm-hmm. and, and moral Duke and ethical due care for, as we implement them. But for us, you know, we've, and we're getting into this a little bit with chat GP3 and we're, we're starting to see some of the, the problems with just even a natural language processing model, like something that 10 years ago, nobody would have ever thought it would be a, a big deal besides the people who work in comms like they they're, I guess this is this is problematic in in those who work in the hacking world and stuff that they see these correlations and so you can use the model for anything malicious mm-hmm. and that's that just depends on the creator like if there's no if there's no ethical framework and that and I think that's what scares people too is even with let's say the the drought of Afghanistan and just leaving all that equipment behind you're talking about radios you're talking about drones all all that stuff so westerners and certain nations around the world follow humanitarian laws they follow rules of engagement but what happens when a country decides to use that tech outside of those agreements right that's that's the problem and so of course Westerners are not going to use AI models to, or hopefully not use them to be malicious. And if the government did, we, we'd never know about it, but for the most part, anybody else that's fair game and you can make, you can make the most destructive thing that you can possibly think of. And the only limit is your imagination at this point. If you can imagine it, if you can write a model for it, you can make it.
0: We, we see that, um, here's a couple of things. Um, if it progresses in its predictability, does the stock market become useless? If you were to ask ChatGPT3 now, what are the best stocks to buy over the, for the next 10 years? And it can look back through the history of the stock market. I don't, I don't know how reliable it's gonna be. I, I don't think I would put my money on it, but if, if it just, uh, another iteration or two, has a 99% success rate in choosing the stock market. Well, then what's the point of the stock market anymore? Cause the only thing people are going to invest in are things that are guaranteed. Um, uh, I, I, have, uh, my friend yeah, I mean, Frank Fosco, he, uh, he drew, uh, for the Ninja turtle comic books, he was an artist for Ninja turtles. Hmm. And I, so I sent him an idea. I said, I'd like to see a comic book about AI running for president and that it would come up with the best possible solution to uh, enable the most humans thriving. And that's the platform it was running on, happiness for all, right? And uh, if we're already this far, it wouldn't be that many iterations before you could just ask it, solve these problems for us. Is is that a good thing?
1: Yeah, so this argument, as it relates to automation has been, it's been happening for a while. And you have guys like John Danaher who wrote a book on work and automation. And there's some other ones out there. Andrew Yang has Mm -hmm. talked about this a little bit, which he was running for president. And, um, and so the basic thought is that we'll get to a point where humans kind of phase out of the day-to-day jobs. and, And I think that was, further agitated by COVID-19, but also by the great resignation that happened and people just kind of quit working those jobs. And so there's more of a pragmatic turn towards, Hey, let's get a robotic arm or let's think about this. So that accelerated Mm -hmm. when, when that's going to happen exactly, I think a little bit, maybe five to 10 years ahead, maybe more. I don't know. But yeah, I think that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, it's pretty bleak to think about it that way to think and the argument in the literature is that, well, we'll be able to enjoy leisure time more. And, and I don't know if that's true. I don't, I don't know that we'll, it'll make us completely free of work. I think it'll do the opposite in my, in my opinion, I don't have any data or research to back that up. I think what will happen is we'll now become the primary maintainers, mm. and we might work less, but the work will definitely be more dehumanizing. Mm. And <laughs> you even see with the stuff that we see with Amazon, like working in a factory for a robot, yeah. basically yeah.
0: is is kind of that makes sense. Okay, where we're yeah.
1: where we're at, where we're heading. Yeah. So, or even with large scale automation of cars, where I don't know if this is still true today, post pandemic and stuff, but before even places like the Nissan factory up the road, where they're literally just a handful of maintainers of the systems where 90% of the work is handed over to a machine and it does one, one specific integration very well. Yeah. So I, I think that will become more feasible for companies in the future where they're just kind uh, of delegating out all of these other jobs to machines. And so
0: good thing I'm a theologian. Yeah. And, uh, th- nobody wants the computer to stand up there and preach a sermon on Sunday. So I feel like my job is. Well, uh, you, you say that
1: you say that, Oh, but I mean, what if you were a, like holographic? Yeah.
0: Well, that, that would just be our satellite campus, right? We already have that. We already have projected on the screen <laughs> and you got one pastor who's preaching at 10 churches. And, um, Thankfully, what I hear.
1: Yeah, but does that t- does that take away from anybody that's at the worship service though? Uh,
0: yes, yes. I I have. There are people. So we have a large church right down the road. Um, that is a franchise. Might be the harsh word, right? But they do <laughs> they do put them up at the same time as McDonald's is going up in a new thriving area. And it's one pastor Mm. who they just hire. Here's a band. Here's a campus pastor. Here's your staff. It's fully staffed. And as a church planner, it was frustrating because I was like, Mm. oh, here's an area that would be great for us to plan our church. Oh, they've already got one up, right? Well, what about this? Oh, nope, they're Mm. already over there, too. And so they build these uh, almost Walmart-sized buildings. And the the pastor, it was like a big deal when the pastor shows up. And so, and actually preaches in person. It maybe happened once, maybe twice a year that he shows up and preaches in person. Um, hmm. People come to our church and they're like, we just wanted to go to a church where there's a pastor who knew us, right? That I know everybody's name in our congregation. Like, you know what their personal life is going on. So you can be sensitive when you're covering a topic or you can be extra bold because you know. You've already had this conversation with them and now you're really going to drive it home from the pulpit right and and that lack of being able to know where you're getting your wisdom from or where you're getting your spiritual guidance from i think people want to know they my dad ingrained into me nobody cares what you know until they know that you care well does how do you know if a hologram cares for you but
1: i think i think the younger generation might be a little bit different Mm -hmm. I think there's, there's some research that, so I, I think that sometimes there's a a drive and a dichotomy between what is real and what is digital Mm. for a lot of people our age and above, Mm. but for the generation below growing up immersed within a digital culture, I don't know that they would make a start Mm. divide between, okay, the pastor is on a screen 80% of the time. Uh, But. You know, maybe he sees them. Through text or through phone calls or.
0: Yeah.
1: Hopefully in person, but uh, I think that'll change. And I I think. I mean, I get it. I do. I want, I want to be. Embodied with my people. I definitely want that. And. I think there's something to it that. I can't put on paper that makes it distinct, but definitely be able to hug somebody and and just being with them, you know, and loneliness is pretty bad for you. I think it's one surgeon general said the equivalent of smoking 16 cigarettes a day. Oh wow. If you're lonely. So, and we're kind of in a loneliness epidemic with trying to find authentic relationships. So, even if they're digital, so I might be a little bit different here. I think, I think you can have authentic digital relationships that are meaningful, are real, that you get validation from. And I think to deny that would to be to deny the whole infrastructure of why social media is popular. Although it is, I think it is a symptom of wanting those things and not necessarily a solution to it. But I think it's real and so even with just thinking about okay well how could we use chat 3 to make bible studies and and there is there is one that used chat 3pt with the the previous iteration to that you can go on and it'll, it'll make pretty simplistic questions based on any particular verse of the bible and or it'll put together certain patterns for you so i think there are definitely redemptive pieces to this stuff, and so it doesn't have to be all you know doom and gloom. We're doom and gloom, just destructive and socially disruptive. It, it, if we frame it the right way, and if we're part of the conversation, which heaven knows the local church probably won't be, unfortunately, but if we can, if we can give some hope to collaborating with the certain certain makers or even being a maker as a part of a congregation. I think it's, it's very much could be a garden. Like we could be gardening this thing instead of trying to figure out how to protect ourselves from the algorithm. And I think even, even I, yeah, go ahead.
0: Let me ask one more question because I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but there's one more aspect of this. that I'm curious about, um, with the coming and we've talked about chat bt uh, gpt and we've talked about ai a lot we might even mention this in our last conversation that one of the solutions for how fast this thing grows is to integrate with it in the same way that we have grown with our cell phones as cell phones have come we've adapted to them and we've made it easier for us to interact with so instead of the little keyboard now we just use our thumb instead of Um, like we had the facial recognition. I just looked at my phone. It knows who I am. We're, We're making the access to that information as smooth as possible. Will it help us and make it a better thing if we do kind of like what Elon Musk is aiming for with Neuralink, where we're somehow integrated with this information and these, these computer programs, whatever you want to call it.
1: Um... I don't know that i'm comfortable going that far yet okay. i i think the integration the integration could be more so of how far i let it into my personal space mm. which we could argue that we've we've let the smartphone way too deep inside that personal space where it's going to the bathroom with us it's <laughs> in the bedroom it, it, you know like every the most intimate parts of our life it's is there i don't want to go back to reading and the shampoo bottle in the bathroom though i'm with you <laughs> i'm with you though it's like so it's it's a cost benefit yeah. thing where but i and this is what i was saying earlier I, the the problem for me with the integration is sometimes those concessions lead me to allow myself to go deeper into the harmful parts of too much screen time. And, you know, I have ADHD and man, like, it's just so addictive to. And then I get to like three o'clock in the evening where I'm just burned out and I've done so much. And did I eat today? Did I drink water today? You know, I didn't. And, and so the, the screen and the phone really kind of push me towards productivity. And and so my concern with the Neuralink and even with having a robot assistant, which I think would be awesome, just our friend just to help me do ministry and stuff. I think my concern would that it would be its own little taskmaster, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you didn't write these emails today, you didn't do this today. And I think about screen time, right? And so judgmental and snarky and i turned it off a long time ago because the hypocrisy of a company yeah. telling me not to use my screen as much when you continually use my money to make it more addictive yeah. at are not addictive but you know no, addictive is the right hooked. word that's their goal that's yeah. the word they don't they don't they don't like addictive but that's what it is <laughs> I mean, like, so anyway i think with Neuralink, it. There's another boundary we're crossing. And this is where I'll bring in my friend Brent Waters. And, and kind of where I I kind of lean is that there's there's a difference between enhancement, like something that's going to enrich my life and, and make it better than just straight out augmentation for the sake of I, I want to be more bionic. And I think that's that's a line we have to, determine individualistically but also as the church like do we want to cross this threshold and do i want something that can see the innermost parts of my being even though yes it would be really awesome to have that memory recollection and to be able to yeah,
0: that's what i want
1: so there's actually a great yeah i would like
0: to be able to remember the book there's actually that I a read. great
1: story yeah. That would be awesome, but you could just reread them, right? And there's there's a process of I don't have it yeah. discipline that I think it would take away from, mm-hmm. kind of like writing did. Plato talked about how writing would destroy the memory. Mm-hmm. That was true. Mm-hmm. That was true. So the Neuralink, I believe, just bring this just go back to Plato. It'll probably destroy the life of the mind. Mm-hmm. For really honest. It'll really break that down. and If you want to see hyper isolation and just read any cyberpunk Mm sci-fi and and what's happening in this constant connection, but through virtual mediums without any outside. It's just, it's not quite the world I think God envisioned for us. The board. And so I would say use caution there, like use Mm -hmm. caution in... And even though the benefits will be really awesome in the short term, I worry that it will have some pretty gnarly effects on our, our minds and our body, ultimately, the soul. You know, That's the one part I was about excited about. It just
0: killed my buzz because I, I would just like <laughs> to be able to, like, when I read a book, be able to recall it. Cause I remember maybe one or two sentences. Like I was like, I remember the general theme, but I'll highlight, I'm a a massive highlighter. So I go through like a highlighter a month and I just highlight a book going, I want to remember this. Oh, wow. And so then I'll pray for you. I'll remember, I'll remember when, uh, like somebody will say, well, what do you think about this? And I go, there's a really good thing on that. And I have to find the book and then I have to scan all the highlights to try to remember what it was. I liked about what it said. And I, I would like
1: see see you could you could just make a chat bot chat gp3 you can make a yeah. chat bot download that book into it and then you say hold on one second and ask it one question yeah, yeah. and it would so you, you don't need a neural link for that man I'm just lazy and, you, know, I just you don't want I have to go, go, go cutting you. in your brain yeah,
0: yeah I got you <laughs>
1: um, no I think that's the future Caleb, to be honest I think we'll, we'll get there and uh, and there's a book called the periphery by William Gibson who kind of created the cyberpunk genre and cyberspace infatuation. But that's a part of it. And it's, But it's all about empathy. Mm-hmm. So I think there's another conversation we could have later on down the road about how that actually could lead to some deeper empathy between two humans. Mm-hmm. You think about if if a wife and a husband had these hepatic connections to one another to be with their own degreed Autonomy, like I want you to be a little bit more connected to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, uh, okay, I might I might make some concessions there. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not saying it's all yeah. all negative, but I definitely don't want Elon in my head. That makes <laughs> sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um and he's one
0: who's weary of all of this, but I'm like, dude, you kind of funded Chat GPT. Like you you played a big role in it. And now he's like, wait a minute, too he, fast. It's
1: all it's all a show. Yes, yes. It's all a show, um, man. I, it's like the the year he announced the humanoid robot. Yeah, like, oh. yeah. <laughs> he's not an idiot. No. He's not. He's just. I, I think it. I'm a fanboy. I love it. Uh, it's, it's, it's all about money for him. For me. Yeah.
0: Um, you've got another. You've got a YouTube project that you've started. Um, tell me yeah. a little bit about that.
1: So it's. It's a piece to my podcast, The Dolores Project, that I'm trying to grow, which is kind of going back to the earlier part of our conversation about trying to get involved in some of the tech conversation. And and so my goal initially was to interview all the people on this map that David Gunkel made about different perspectives on robot rights. Mm But then as I got into it, a lot of people didn't, some people didn't want to talk to me on one side of the spectrum and then on the other side, it was just kind of all over the place. And, and then it kind of blossomed into, well, why don't we just have this conversation with everybody? Why don't we just kind of see what people are thinking about AI and robots in general? And, and that's kind of where the project is moving just to have this massive anthology of of thinkers and writers. So if you're interested in a particular topic on AI or robots or tech, instead of having to read thousands and thousands of pages, which I am glad to do, but most people are not. And so like, how can we just have very basic conversations kind of like we're having right now that everybody in the room could understand that doesn't always play out, but that's that's kind of the heart of the Dolores project is to bring people onto the front porch, just sit down, discuss some very heady, deep topics. And, and sometimes it gets very passionate, but most of the time it's just me asking them questions to explain their research. And, you know, we talk about all kinds of different things, man. So I'm, I'm trying to grow that channel and we started from zero. And have more video conversations and just
0: where where can they try find to make it? What's, it the, what's as the name? Human.
1: Yeah, it's the Dolores, the Dolores project. project. Yeah, okay. Dolores is spelled D O, not yes, D E. Yeah. That's a different project. So, okay, um, so if you're listening, so Dolores, go to the Dolores on...
0: project YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe, hit the notification yeah. bell. And by the way, you can do that to this channel too. You know, if you like. uh, Feel free to, to we're, we're drifting away. Um, we've got a good size uh, podcast uh, audience. YouTube's a little bit harder to grow than the podcast, but we're, we're growing. So I know about 90% of the people who watch this aren't subscribed, so subscribe because I, I don't hear mm. these conversations very many places. And I'm glad this was a basic conversation for you. This was the top of my intellectual capacity to have this conversation. So, um, <laughs> but Josh, I always love having you on. Man, you're a fascinating man. You're a, a man of God and a pastor. And uh, I love that God has gifted people with different passions, so that uh, you can help some of the rest of us who are um, wouldn't know even where to begin with these conversations. But you help guide and direct mm. us a little bit on that. So. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, is there anything else uh, anything else of yours that we could plug or anything else that you'd like to add?
1: That's it, man. I appreciate yep. it. Thanks so much. Kevin. And I
0: look forward to the new book. I'll be sure to uh, be one of the first people on the list to pre-order, and we'll have you on to talk about that. Sound good? Cool. All right. Thank you.